This is Jewish Board Talk with Sharice Zephard, only on 101.9 High FM. I am delighted to talk now to Mike Wine, an expert in the field of terrorism. Mike has been the advisor to the UK government and has been associated with the British Community Security Trust, or CST, for the past 35 years. He is now taking on the role of Senior Consultant at the World Jewish Congress, focusing on strategic and security matters. Mike, welcome and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Mike, just to start off with a little bit of trivia, do you know that you were the first person I ever interviewed when I started at the show at High FM? <laughs> I didn't know. It must and have been I a was, long time ago. And I was so nervous to ask you all the questions I wanted to know because I thought they might be silly. <laughs> well, I've been visiting South Africa, was it for 25 years, something like that. I mean, before Wendy took over... It's a long time. And we really appreciate your support. I know you are our go-to person whenever terrorism hits the, the geopolitical thing, which is quite often. But actually, I think the last time we were talking, Mike, was about the attacks in Nairobi. At the time, I remember there was the White Widow and she was on the terrorism list. And in a way, it feels like such a long time ago. So I wonder if you could paint a picture of terrorism at the moment compared to where we were. Both moved on and stayed in the same place in the sense that while there have been uh, in the last year, two years, virtually no uh, fatal uh, or rather terrorist attacks which resulted in fatalities in, in uh, Europe, the USA, I exclude the Middle East and of course Africa, but certainly where there was a major problem with terrorism. That has over, partly because of the pandemic and people, <laughs> terrorists are getting out, but more because states' authorities have got a better handle, they've got a better focus on it. That's not to say that attempts aren't being made, they are. And even in Europe, in the last couple of months, there have been a number of foiled terrorist attacks. But police security services are much better focused uh, on these uh, than they were previously. Uh, Another point to make is that terrorism is the nature of terrorist attacks is changing. Whereas previously we've been talking about groups, small groups often attempting to perpetrate terrorist acts. Now, almost all of the terrorist attacks uh, that have taken place or that have been foiled have been by single or lone operators. That's a major change, which, of course, makes it much more difficult to foil because they aren't going to advertise the fact that they're planning, at least not openly. So, again, another major change. Uh, another, Yet another major change is the direction from which terrorism is coming. So when we first started talking, uh, the majority of terrorist attacks in the West uh, were from Islamist groups, jihadis. Uh, now, uh, a substantial minority, and in the UK, I would say more than half, uh, of terrorist attacks or terrorist attempts to uh, attack uh, have been made or perpetrated by extreme right wing. I exclude Africa because it's a different case altogether where, of course, uh, ISIS uh, has relocated most of its operations in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but as far as Europe is, and America is concerned, um, something approaching half of attacks now uh, are coming from the extreme right. 
That is quite a big change, Mike. And yes. uh, is that the lone wolf attacks are coming from the extreme right? Uh, yes, it's the lone wolf phenomenon, uh, which is aided, of course, by the Internet uh, and in Europe by Schengen. The Schengen is a, a European Union agreement which reduced border controls. So there's free travel within the European Union without passports. So that meant somebody wanting to attack uh, Germany from, say, the Netherlands could cross into Germany and there would be no record of his having moved. But it's the Internet, really, uh, that has made all the difference. Firstly, in terms of uh, ideology, sending out ideology, spreading ideology. Uh, secondly, accessing the means uh, not only buying chemicals or accessing manuals on how to create a bomb, uh, but also the making of weapons in uh, Halle in, in, Eastern, in former Eastern Germany uh, two years ago uh, was by a guy who learned to make a weapon using the Internet. On the one hand, as far as the victims are concerned, uh, terrorism hasn't changed, but as far as the means by which terrorists operate has changed. And another point I would make is that, unlike the USA, the majority of terrorist attacks in Europe, um, and even in the, to some extent, in the, at least against Israel, uh, are vehicles and bladed weapons. In other words, the use of knives or vehicles. They don't. Ha- I mean, in Europe, you don't get access to firearms in the way that you can in America. Michael, can we talk a little bit about Africa? Because South Africa borders Mozambique and they've had the most horrendous uh, attacks in Kapadugo and, you know, Africa is coming together. And my friends who live in Maputo keep saying to me, Sharice, can't Israel get involved? Can't Israel come and help us? You know, we're struggling here. Um, and I just wonder if you can talk through what is happening in Africa and why it's different. Well, for, for a start, I mean, Israel's got its own problems. Whilst it can offer humanitarian aid, it doesn't get involved in other uh, armed conflicts or uh, uh, other military things. By and large, it's got more than its hands full dealing with uh, threats to its own borders. But Africa, you've got a whole range of issues. Many of them are the consequence of colonialism. Basically, Europe was raped by the Europeans whether it was the British or the, the Belgians or the Dutch or, or the Germans. Uh, and we've got the consequences of that. Borders were created. I mean, A, Africa's wealth was stolen uh, by, by, by Europeans. Secondly, they didn't leave behind a legacy of democratic governance. There are borders that have been drawn which ignore national or natural borders between tribes and clans and peoples. They were often arbitrarily uh, drawn, and that created conflicts. And I think corruption is a major, major issue. And that is also, in part, a legacy of the West's imperialism, colonialism uh, within Africa. That creates safe spaces for terrorists. So, for example, sub-Saharan Africa. ISIS has moved in. It's not just Shabab in in Nigeria, it's ISIS itself, which has to a substantial extent relocated to sub-Saharan Africa because these are ungoverned spaces. Government in these countries is ineffective, it's corrupt, 
And that creates safe spaces, as, as it were, for terrorists to operate in. Michael, I don't know if this is a fair question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. One of the images, uh, somebody who I thought was a friend sent me an image of some things coming out of Mozambique. And uh, he's no longer a friend because when I opened the image, it was horrendous. I'm not going to describe what I saw because I'm sure I'll lose my friends, but it was really, really horrendous. And it, it had to do with hacking um, bodies. And I just kind of wondered, what is the psychological thought process of a terrorist who is able to, to do that kind of thing? In effect, a fellow citizen, actually. It's like rape. It, it's a weapon. It terrorizes people. If you see a body hanging, it terrorizes you. Uh, it makes you afraid of the perpetrators. The way of exerting power, apart from the, the, the sheer cruelty of the people, and particularly where you've got child soldiers drawn into terrorist conflicts who don't have the maturity to distinguish between good and bad and who are educated towards violence. The people who are recruited often join out of choice. The evidence suggests that many uh, people, certainly in Africa, uh, are joining terrorist groups either out of misplaced religious sense or because they have no option. They're, they're forced into it, voluntarily join terrorist groups. They do so either for protect, self-protection or protection of their families or because they're just coerced into doing it. Do people, is it a certain kind of person that will act that out or, or people conditioned into behaving like that? No, people are conditioned into behaving like that. I don't think people are born terrorists. Um, and certainly, um, as we saw, for example, in Nazi Germany, uh, ordinary people, because they were taught to hate, uh, became perpetrators of, of violence and of, of racism and then violence. It's a conditioning that people go through. Um, it's often said by sort of academics and certainly by the sort of policemen that I've been working with over the last few years that hatred, hate crime constitutes the foothills for terrorism. In other words, if you are taught to hate, then you go, you can sort of move one step further towards committing an act of violence. Basically, you're saying it's all conditioning and it's not some deep-seated psychological imbalance. Within very, the very rarely. There, obviously, there are some people who are just nasty. <laughs> but for the most part, people are conditioned into it. That kind of brings us in a way to Afghanistan and what is happening there. And also, people have been very critical of America and how it's handled the situation. <clears throat> and I think people are talking, uh, do you see that, how do you see that impacting on a broader range of terrorism or global extremism? Under Taliban governance, uh, Afghanistan could become a safe haven for terror, for Islamic terrorism. Uh, it could become uh, a training ground. I mean, there are well-founded fears. Al-Qaeda, which always was supported by the Taliban, could use Afghanistan now as a, as a base from which to operate abroad. But Afghanistan is a particular case in point, which is, I think, uh, indicative of what's happened elsewhere. The Taliban is not something alien. It's, Af it's Afghanis who resent foreigners coming there. And this is 
something that goes back hundreds of years. I mean, the, the British were kicked out of Afghanistan. Then the Russians were kicked out of Afghanistan. And now the Americans. Afghanis in particular resent the invasion of the foreigners who are there to teach them how to govern themselves. Moreover, with it, they've brought massive corruption. Whilst they bought education, particularly in Kabul uh, and uh, education for women. Uh, they also bought, and, and, and oh, I should say that over 80% of, of Afghanistan is still in a really very basic and primitive way of living. 80% of Afghanistan relies on rain-fed agriculture. The number of people, the, the uh, number of people living in Kabul who have received, who have received education since uh, I don't know, the last 15 years or so, a very small minority. The majority of Afghanis are simple villagers living a very simple uh, agri- agrarian life. And they deeply resent um, foreigners coming in, trying to govern them. Secondly, Afghanistan is not one cohesive community. It's made up of dozens of clans, who are often in conflict with one another. And you have to look at the history of Afghanistan to understand this. It's not a stable environment anyway. It's a very basic uh, agricultural-based environment. And the West has failed to export values uh, to Afghanistan because they're resented in Afghanistan. Despite the American presence and the British presence, uh, in Afghanistan, very little has changed for those living in these rare, uh, rural areas. They still have no roads. They no, have no running water. They have no electricity, certainly no education. So the West has not bought them any benefits. That's another reason why uh, the American, British allied presence is deeply resented. What do you think America could or should have done differently other than possibly not have gone in there in the first place? <laughs> Well, they probably shouldn't have gone in in the first place. I mean, the idea deal with the Al-Qaeda leadership, I think, was fine. They should have left it at that. Not, I mean, this was uh, uh, the Bush-Blair uh, doctrine that they would export Western democracy uh, to Afghanistan and change the country overnight. Well, looking back now, you could see that that was a forlorn hope. The message, I've been reading a lot about people saying the message that America gave with regard to allowing extremism to flourish was a negative one. And this is going to impact very negatively on America. Allowing extremism in America to flourish or no. extremism on elsewhere? On a global scale. Yes. And OK, we, we have since the Second World War regarded America as the world's policeman. Uh, but increasingly, they don't want to be the world's policeman. Um, they don't want to lose American lives preserving democracy in Afghanistan when democracy really has very little place in Afghanistan now, uh, and never did. Uh, you know, it was a tribal society where religion was dominant, uh, or a version of Islam was dominant. So, uh, you know, as I say, it was probably a forlorn hope, uh, a misplaced, uh, misplaced hope that we could export uh, Western values to a country like Afghanistan. They also talk about the Taliban has changed over the last 20 years, that the, the new Taliban is not quite the same yeah. as the old Taliban. Yeah. And I'd like your comments on that. We don't yet know. Certainly, I mean, certainly the, the, the leadership has changed. The, the Mullah Omar, the, the founder of the Taliban, is now dead, uh, but one of his sons 
uh, is the military leader of Taliban. That's uh, uh, Mohammed Yaqub. Uh, it's the son of Mullah Omar. But the supreme leader, as, as he's known, uh, Aku, I, I can't even pronounce it, Akudazada, uh, his uh, Hibatullah Akudazada, supreme leader since 2016, and his political deputy, Baradar, say that they have changed. But the evidence from NGOs that have been working in Afghanistan until recently is that they've not changed. Uh, what they have learned is the power of public relations. Uh, I mean, Baradar was imprisoned by Pakistan at American request for six years. And it's been said that, you know, he was educated whilst he was in prison. Time will tell. I mean, the third or fourth person in the leadership is a guy called uh, Haqqani, who runs the Haqqani Network, who are the most violent elements within the Taliban. So we don't know. Also, it's important to say that the Taliban is not a unitary body. Although there are leaders and there are deputy leaders, uh, the Taliban is made up of very disparate elements. There are the the, the sort of the ignorant people who have been recruited in from the villages and the remote parts of Afghanistan. And there are people like the leaders, whose names I mentioned, who are educated, uh, but how it's all going to work out. I think it's too early to say. I think that economic and political pressures may change their behavior. I mean, Afghanistan is bankrupt. All its foreign, I mean, you can't trade the Afghani money. Uh, They have to deal in dollars and America is holding all Afghanistan's money and so is the International Monetary Fund. So they've got no money. If they want to trade, uh, if they want to build, if they want to uh, create industry, if indeed they've got that, that's their wish, then they're going to have to have access to foreign currency. And at the moment, they don't. And that is being withheld from them. The only possibility is China, uh, because Afghanistan has uh, enormous uh, deposits of copper uh, and other valuable minerals it's already apparent that China is attempting to to mine these uh, with Afghani help, uh, and that will bring them uh, that will bring them income. But the main income earner uh, for Afghanistan is heroin. That's their biggest income earner, heroin. You know, they they may decide well they don't want the Chinese there, like they don't want other foreigners there. They don't want to sell their copper deposits. They'll continue to sell uh, opium. So complicated, and I guess we have to wait and see. We've got like a remaining four minutes, and I, I wonder in those four minutes you can share for me your your experiences. You know, you're leaving the CST, which is our equivalent of the CSO, after 35 years. And when you think back on the and at that time, what were your highlights and lowlights? We evolved. I mean, firstly, we started out as two distinct elements. One is. Uh, young people like myself who were fighting fascists on the streets of London, and secondly, Jewish ex-servicemen who'd fought the Nazis uh, during the Second World War. So it was the coming together of these two groups. Uh, and initially we were, f- although we had a fairly sophisticated uh, setup, uh, our practice uh, the way in which we applied our learning, our knowledge and our experiences was unsophisticated. Now, 
CST is enormously sophisticated. Uh, we have had a, we work very closely. They work very closely with the British police and British government. Uh, even it, well, in my time, certainly we, we, we started doing that. Um, and we, another highlight was that we not only got the Jewish community to accept the idea that we needed together with law enforcement, together with the police, uh, to protect ourselves and to provide our own protection, and that we would have to fund that because at that time the British government wasn't funding us. Secondly, we worked through Jewish schools, training Jewish kids. So kids going through Jewish schools would get some element, not necessarily of combat, of course not, uh, but some element of self-awareness uh, and dangers on the streets. So we created a generation, we educated a generation of Jewish kids who understood that there were dangers out there and that they were potential targets. Um, the Internet changed everything dramatically uh, because not only were we able to build communications uh, between the centre and Jewish communities around the country and synagogues. So to the point where every synagogue and every Jewish school is covered by closed circuit television uh, coverage. Uh, we directly can link in with the police. We have a 24-7 control, a 24-hour uh, control centre, uh, which gets feeds in continuously from the whole Jewish community and which we can, which we can utilise for uh, exchanges with the police and they with us. So communications, because of the advance of modern communications, also our information gathering, our research, was transformed and enhanced uh, by the internet and electronic communications. So the CST has developed from a fairly unsophisticated group uh, to a very sophisticated operation indeed. In no small part due to your uh, constant... Well, um... since I retired... Elements of the British government keep offering me jobs. <laughs> and in fact, I'm committed. In fact, I inspect the police now. I'm part of what's called an audit commission. And I go around, well, I've only done it once recently. I was supposed to do one over Rosh Hashanah and I said, I can't do it then. But actually, because I'm a, uh, because of my experience and so on, uh, I actually go into the police files the computer files, sitting with a policeman to inspect how well they're doing. That is extremely reassuring. And again, I, I, I'm pleased that, you know, though you're not at the CST, we'll still be working with you at the World Jewish Congress. Well, World Jewish Congress, Congress, exactly. And I'm so also I'm part of the not losing you. And I'm, I'm also doing stuff at the European level as well now for the Council That's of Europe. Fantastic. So I know that I, I've still got a friend um, in the industry, as it were. Um, and just to say thank you very much and good thank luck you. with your future endeavors. Thank you. This terrorist expert, Mike Wine, who has uh, just left the CST after 35 years of service.